Welcome to Twice Five Miles Radio, fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave. We're always broadcasting first on WPVM LP Asheville, 103.7 and streaming online, WPVMFM.org. The voice of Asheville heard all over the world and on other community radio stations like KCEI, Cultural Energy Radio out of Taos, New Mexico. I'd like to thank Walter Parks for our theme song. Thank you, Walter Parks, for all the good work you do on that guitar and on your songwriting. We really do appreciate it. WalterParks.com if you'd like to know more about Walter's music. JamesNave.com. That's my website, JamesNave.com. Nave is spelled N-A-V-E. You can always reach me through my website. I would love to hear from you. What's your story? Where are you in the world? What are you up to? Tell me something. It'll be fun. And I'd also like to tell you that every Saturday I host a, a writer's group. We get together and we do a thing called Writing from the Imaginative Storm to the Creative Form. It's a Zoom gathering and we do it every Saturday. If you would like to join us, we are dancing between our imaginative minds and our rational minds and put the two together and you end up with something interesting. And we do that every Saturday morning at 10 Mountain Time and noon Eastern Time. So if you'd like to be part of that, we'd love to have you. The door is always open. And the website is imaginativestorm.com. That's imaginativestorm.com. And I'd like to thank Davine Dial for all the good work she does at WPVM-FM. I would not be able to do these great interviews without Davine saying the mystical yes. Please do what you want. Be creative. Go forth and interview people. Find out what's going on in the world. So thank you, Davine Dial, for that. And speaking of what's going on in the world, if you've listened to this show, and I hope you have, or if you're the first time listening, it's important for me to just tell you that I I interview people from all walks of life. Some folks I know, some I don't, some I've met on Zoom, others I have just met for the first time. My guest today, my guest today, Adam Gidwitz, is a a young adult author. He works with the old stories, the fairy tales, and he he illustrates and writes those fairy tales out in, in modern ways. And he's made quite a name for himself doing all of this work on the page. And Adam has a fascination for story. And he also has a fascination around culture and the the politics of humanity, how we interact as human beings and, and how we can create momentum with our own influences by showing up at the page or showing up on the screen as we're doing now and and moving forward. So Adam, welcome to Twice Five Miles Radio. Uh, Thank you so much for having me. Excited to talk to you today. Well, I know that you love fairy tales and I would like for you to start this interview, this conversation really, by telling us how you see fairy tales playing out in our modern culture. It's one thing to have your your parents sit down and say, once upon a time, there was someone under an old gnarly tree. <laughs> it's another thing to think about these fairy tales that have been around for a long time, these, these old stories, how they play out in the culture we're in right now. So I'd like to just open the conversation up, asking you to reflect on on that, because I know you're very interested in things that are in the modern culture right now. So please. Yeah, what a, what a, a broad invitation. And I want to take it about 12 different directions, but I'll try to do one at a time to limit it so that, you know, you can follow my crazy trains of thought. 
I think, you know, the first place I always think of with fairy tales is children, and that's who I write for. And so when I think about fairy tales for children, just as you said, I'm taking usually classic fairy tales, fairy tales from the 19th century, and I retell them for kids in a way that will connect with those kids and resonate with them today. And the reason I take those fairy tales and tell them, retell them, is because those fairy tales come out of a long oral tradition that existed in Europe of people telling stories to their children under a gnarled tree, just like you said, and then telling them again and again. And those fairy tales evolving and changing with each generation, with each storyteller. It's a magical process that distilled these stories into things that speak very deeply to the human condition and especially to the condition of being a child. And so you get stories, some of which come through almost unchanged generation after generation in their themes and their major plot points because they're so powerful. We have found a Cinderella type story in cultures going back 3000 years, because when that story was discovered and told for the first time to a kid, that kid was like, I want to hear that again and again and again. And then they told it again. And, and as it moves from ancient Egypt to China, maybe not in that order, but you know, they're all coming together from these various sources. Kids keep wanting to hear it. And, and then eventually it comes down to us. And the reason I think it's important to retell them today is because a lot of these fairy tales help us cope with the most difficult things in our lives. Sometimes it has to do with jealousy towards uh, another person, maybe towards a parent, Maybe sometimes it's even projected jealousy of a parent back towards a kid. I think a lot about the story Snow White. Snow White is about a mother or a stepmother who is jealous of her daughter. And what a weird, interesting dynamic that is. Why do so many people love the story Snow White? Well, I, because I think actually we have complicated relationships with our parents and it helps us imagine them, play them out. Um, and then ultimately work through those feelings. So that's for the children. But then you talk about adults in our political community. We met first through um, political group. We work under the umbrella of a group called Future Now, which uh, people can go check out their website, futurenow.org. Our conversations first began about politics, and, and we certainly see that today in politics, there is a lot of use of story, sometimes ancient story, sometimes not positive stories, told and retold in order to motivate people to touch their inner emotions, sometimes their positive ones, sometimes their darker emotions, and to mobilize those emotions into electoral action, sometimes into demonstration, sometimes even in a violent action. So I'm really interested in fairy tales and stories and storytelling in all of the ways they can be used positively as well as negatively understanding those ways as well. What would be an example of a fairy tale, a story that you've worked with that would fit into what we are experiencing today in our culture politically, as well as, as other ways. And then also reflect on the idea of politics. So often when people say politics, we think of Washington, and yet we are creatures of the political arena, even in a household. Mm, we are. That's really true. I'll answer the first half of your question first, but don't let me forget the second half of your question because uh, that's really uh, provocative. There are many fairy tales that apply, sometimes more 
obviously and sometimes more subtly to the political situation. One of my favorites uh, that I recorded for a podcast that I do for kids called Grim Grimmer Grimmest, if I can get a plug in there, available anywhere podcasts are found. Uh, I tell fairy tales live to kids, which is great because it provokes conversation with those children. Um, so we, I tell the fairy tale, but also they talk back to me and we have a conversation. So this is fantastic fairy tale. It's not very well known, collected by the Brothers Grimm called The Farmer's Clever Daughter. And it's the story about a little girl who is very poor and her father finds on their property, he finds a mortar, right? Half of a mortar and pestle set, and it's made of gold. And he says, I'm going to go take this to the king. I'm sure I'll get a great reward. And his daughter says, don't take it. And he says, why not? And she says, if you give the king the mortar, he's going to ask where the pestle is. Father says, I didn't find a pestle. She says, just don't take it. He doesn't listen to his daughter. And he takes it. And the king says, what a wonderful gift. Where's the pestle? And he doesn't have it. He's thrown into the dungeon. And his daughter has to get him out of the dungeon. And the way that she gets him out of the dungeon is by tricking the king. And eventually she tricks the king uh, so thoroughly that she becomes the queen and ruler of the kingdom. So it is a story about the inversion of power. The poorest little girl in the kingdom becomes its most powerful person through the power of her own intelligence. So that is a story that it can inspire children and adults that even when there are great powers above us, by being sensitive, by being thoughtful, and by being clever, we can take some of that power back and right the injustices of the world. I think we certainly need to hear stories that give us feelings of hope because there is a lot of selfishness in the world. There's a lot of darkness in the world. There's a lot of pettiness in the world and cynicism in the world. So that's another thing you see in a lot of fairy tales. You see villains who are cynical, who say one thing when they know that it's not true. I told a story recently about a character called the Margrave, archaic word for like a general. And this Margrave claims to have killed three giants. The story is called Ten Thumbs. It's a great, weird story. The main character of the story is, is a boy called Ten Thumbs because he has ten thumbs instead of ten fingers, which is very useful for certain things and quite clumsy in other ways. Ten Thumbs eventually has to kill these three giants who are trying to capture a princess. And he does, but then he has to run away from the scene. But he knows that any giant killer worth his salt cuts off the thumbs of the giant and takes them with him. Well, the Margrave comes upon the scene after Ten Thumbs has fled and claims that he killed the giants and that he saved the princess. And so the princess is going to be forced to marry the Margrave, which she doesn't want to do. Uh, forced marriage is a theme that runs through a lot of these fairy tales, and the girls that I tell them to are always like, that's not fair, and they are correct. Well, <laughs> the Margrave gets up in front of the king and just lies, lies directly to his face. I killed these giants. And that bald-faced lying, that cynicism, enrages the children that I tell these stories to, and it enrages me. And I think when we see it, and we have had many politicians of late who have bald-facedly lied into the cameras, staring into our eyes and telling us something that we know is not true and they know is not true. And it should enrage us. And the fairy tales, we get to see at least emotionally a way out of it. <laughs> what <laughs> the, the way Ten Thumbs gets out of it is uh, the princess says to the Margrave, where are the giant's thumbs? 
And the Margrave says, everyone knows that giants don't have thumbs. Now, of course, everyone knows is one of those classic politician lines. Everybody knows. People say when we know it's not true, trying to trick us. He says, everyone knows giants don't have thumbs. And then the doors to the hall burst open and 10 thumbs appears holding the thumbs aloft. And he says, why do I have 16 thumbs? And everyone goes, what? Because he's got 10 thumbs on his hands and then six more thumbs from the dead giants. So he shows that the Margrave was lying. And the Margrave is put to death, as he well should be, and 10 thumbs marries the princess, uh, which she would like to do. So one of the things that these fairy tales are doing is, both for children and adults, depicting the villains of the world and the, the awful and unfair situations of the world, be it inequality and inequity, or be it cynical leaders, and showing us an emotional way forward to fight those things and overcome them. What about the political nature of the household, the political nature in general of the way human beings interact? Do you think that new fairy tales will emerge from this time now? Or are we always going to be drawing on the old grim tales? Anything new coming out? Are you writing anything new? All great questions. I'd love to talk for a minute about the political nature of the household as well as the fairy tale. And that relates to something that I have worked on and is coming out for me. So my first book is called A Tale Dark and Grim. And in that book, each chapter is based on a different fairy tale that exists for the first six chapters. And then the last three chapters finish out the story. It's all one big story. And they round out the story with my own stories. But as a whole, it's it's a new story. So it feels like it is a new fairy tale composed of old ones. And excitingly, it is being made into an animated show, which will be debuting on Netflix in October. So please, everybody, Tale Dark and Grim on Netflix in October. And the reason I bring it up in response to this question of the family as a political community is... When I was doing research on the book, I was relying a lot on the work of one of the leading scholars of fairy tales in America. His name is Jack Zipes, and he is a professor now emeritus, I believe, I think from Minnesota. So Jack Zipes has written a number of incredible books on the Brothers Grimm and fairy tales in general. And I sent him my book in order to get his thoughts. And he wrote back an incredible interpretive essay about my book. And he interpreted the book as a comment on the presidency of George W. Bush. So the king became George Bush. The lies became the lies about the invasion of Iraq. So he read the whole book that way, and it was a perfectly coherent reading. I hadn't thought of that at all. The book to me was a book about my father and the experiences that I went through after my father decided to divorce my mom. And what's funny is those two stories, in terms of story arcs and narratives, tracked perfectly. They both had the same ups and downs and climax and conclusion. For me, that book was about the politics of the family, the father as king, and the child as the subject or the prince or the princess who is trying to find their own truth in their own way in the world. For Zipes, it was about the politics of our country, the president as king, and the citizens as people trying to find truth and meaning in the world and make the world a just place to live. And those both can coexist at the same time. So I think when we talk about the politics of our families, uh, we're also talking about the politics of our communities and of our nation um, and vice versa. And so the 
story that you're working on right now is a collection of the old stories collated into something new. As I'm listening to you speak, I think about the great musicians who play jazz. They attribute all of their experience to the ones who came before. So in some ways, the question I posed, is it going to be new? I should have known that, of course, <laughs> it's not going to be new because there's nothing really new under the sun except the new telling the new variables that you might add to the story to to give insight into the reader's current situation everything is both old and new i absolutely agree that there's nothing new under the sun and yet the counterpoint to that which is also equally true was illustrated to me beautifully by the most important piece of fan mail i've ever written not received written i am an enormous fan of the author john le carré who passed away last year, I think. Uh, he writes spy novels, and to the listeners who haven't read his spy novels, I couldn't recommend them highly enough. They are literary art as well as page turners. Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, one of the great books written in the 20th century, I think. I was reading his books, and I came across in a book that he wrote called A Small Town in Germany, one of his earliest books. A woman is recounting the way that the bad guy in the book was following her around. She's recounting it to a pair of police officers, and she says, I don't know, it felt like he was stalking me, she said. And then she reflected, I don't know why I used such a strange word to mean that. I was like, what does she mean? Stalking is a very normal word. We all understand what the word stalking means. It means to follow somebody around in a creepy way. But she was apologizing for using it in what she seemed to think was a new way to follow someone around creepily. And I thought, what was going on? So I ran to one of the great reference books ever created, the Oxford English Dictionary, and I opened it up and looked at the history of the word stalking. In the history of the word stalking, it only recently came to mean following somebody around in a creepy way. It had meant hunting, right? Stalking, like a stalker's cap, is a hunter's cap. In fact, this book, which was published in the 1960s, predated any usage of stalking in the Oxford English Dictionary, any usage of stalking to mean following around in a creepy way. The first thing I did was online, I submitted this as the original usage of stalking to the Oxford English Dictionary. I don't know if they've updated it yet. It takes them years to update every term. Um, but it wouldn't be the first neologism that John Le Carre has in the Oxford English Dictionary. He's also credited with reintroducing to the English language the word mole, meaning double agent. It had been used once by Francis Bacon in the 1600s, never used again. And then he reintroduced it, and he says he has no idea where he got it. He'd certainly never read any Francis Bacon. So he does introduce new words to our language. Then the second thing I did was I wrote to John Le Carre. Through my publisher, I said, can I get this letter to him somehow? And I wrote to him, and I explained the story I just told you, and that I thought he had introduced this word of stalking in the English language, or at least was the first to use in print stalking to mean to follow in a creepy way. And he wrote me back, handwritten letter, which I have framed in my kitchen. And he said, I'm delighted, I'm tickled, I think he said, by the, by the idea that maybe I used that in that way first. He says he, he feared it probably wouldn't hold up. But then he wrote, as a fellow writer, you know, and of course, I'm at that point, John LeCarré thinks I'm a fellow writer. You know, I'm really freaking out at that point. He says, as a fellow writer, you know that we invent everything we write, even if somebody else invented it before. And I thought that that was really true. So it is both true that everything has existed before 
But it is also true that when you say something or when you write something, you are inventing it for the first time for yourself. There is nothing new in the world. And also everything that we create is, is new in its way. I love this idea because so often on this show, I have poets and writers and people who talk about the, the creative process. And I think I have a fair number of listeners who are thinking they would like to do some of this creative work themselves, but they don't feel like they maybe have the right to do it, or they don't feel like they, they know enough. And when you are working with your students, I know you have spent time in schools working with students. What are some of the things that you say to them to, to validate their originality? In a sense, you've done that with this story about John Le Carré and the letter he wrote back to you. But what do you have to say to people who aren't thinking they're as original as they maybe would like to be, or it never occurred to them that they have any originality at all in their lives? I did. I taught for eight years, and I spent a lot of time going to schools and, and speaking to children, and I do occasionally teach adults writing too. I never have to reassure children that they have ideas for stories and that they can be original, right? Before their adolescence, you know, when they're still children, they always believe that they have original ideas. Even if they are blatantly ripping off an idea from a movie, <laughs> uh, they still believe that it is theirs and original and they want to tell it to me and write it down and illustrate it, which I, I God bless, I absolutely uh, love it when they do that. But once adolescence sets in, once that self-consciousness sets in, once what Philip Pullman refers to as the dust sets onto the mind, and then certainly into adulthood, we start to get afraid. We get afraid that we are stealing. We get afraid that we are unoriginal. I mean, there are a few things I say. So one thing I do is I quote Jane Yolen. Jane Yolen is an author of probably over 100 books for young people. She has written that everyone has a book in them who has had a childhood. So if you've ever been a child, you have enough content for an original book in you, for sure. I certainly believe that that is true uh, because in our childhoods, we all experienced deep and intense emotions and we experienced them in ways that no one else did. And we do that through the rest of our lives. But if we think back to our childhoods, we often recapture those emotions before the dust settled and, uh, and then we can tap into them. Those emotions are intense and they are raw and that's where many of the best stories come from. I certainly do that. I just cloak those emotions in fairy tales. So I'm telling the emotions of my childhood. I'm just doing it through the tropes on the language of fairy tales. So that's the first thing I say. And, and then the other thing I say is that originality in stories is really overrated. <laughs> I don't make up my own plots for the most part. I take them from fairy tales. I take them from history when I'm writing a historical fiction book, like the next book that I have that will come out or um, my book, The Inquisitor's Tale or historical fiction. This is a cliche, but it's always worth remembering that Shakespeare didn't make up very many of his plots at all. They were almost entirely stolen either from history chronicles or from other plays that were currently on the stage that he blatantly plagiarized the plot from and then told it just much better than anyone else has ever told a story. So what matters is, is that we each have our own voice. Everyone's voice is unique. I think what people often lose track of is they write and they are writing the way they think writing should sound as opposed to the way that they speak. So I have a, a story that illustrates this very clearly from my own life, if I may. Well, I was a teacher. I taught first grade, second grade, fifth grade, um, and then high school. 
when I was teaching second grade, I was telling the kids lots of stories and I decided that I wanted to write a story for them. I'd never written one down. I'd always told stories, but I'd never written anything down. And we were uh, doing a unit on ancient Egypt and I decided I would try to write a book about ancient Egypt for these kids. It's Tale Dark and Grim. And I wrote a chapter of the book and I wrote it to tell to them. I was imagining these children when I was writing down exactly what I would want to say if I was sitting in the middle of our circle with them all sitting on the rug looking up at me. And I read them the first chapter and they said, that's pretty good. What happens next? And I said, I don't know. So I went home that night, wrote another chapter of the story, read it to them the next day. And we went on like that. Every night I would write a chapter, every day I would read it to them until the end of the school year. And I'd had this book and it was about a hundred pages long and it was finished and the kids had really enjoyed it. And I was very proud of it. And I decided I would try to get A Tale Dark and Grim published. And in order to get the book published, I decided that I would rewrite the entire book. I took it from a 100-page book that was written to be read aloud to my students to a 400-page book that sounded to me like the kinds of books that won Newbery Awards, which is the highest honor in children's books. Pretty much tried to make it sound like Johnny Tremaine, if you remember Johnny Tremaine. And I sent it to an agent, and she read it, and uh, she told me that it wasn't very good. I had spent two years working on it. In fact, I'd quit my job as a teacher in order to write it. So that was pretty hard news to get when I heard that it wasn't very good. And I was talking to her. And in fact, the way I knew this agent was that I had taught her daughter. Her daughter had been in my class. And so she was aware of the process this book had gone through. And I said, yeah, well, you know, it used to sound really different. I wrote A Tale Dark and Grim the way that I would talk to kids. But then obviously I had to rewrite it so it would be publishable. And she said, wait a minute, what? You wrote it in your voice, and then you rewrote it in some other voice? And I was like, ooh, huh. But I really didn't believe that you could write that way. And so when I rewrote Tale Dark and Grim, and I just tried to write it down exactly the way I told it to them. So the very first line of that book is, once upon a time, fairy tales were awesome. I know you don't believe me. I don't blame you. I didn't used to believe it myself. And I went on from there. So I was just talking directly to the kids. And that book is the book that got published. And the book that I rewrote to sound like Johnny Tremaine is still sitting on my shelf. Well, the reason I tell that story is everyone, the way you speak, Navi, certainly the way that you speak, but everybody has a very distinctive way of speaking. And if anyone in the world loves you and loves hearing you talk, and I guarantee everyone has somebody in the world who loves to hear them talk, then you have a way of communicating that people love and that they want to hear. So that's what you need to try to write down, not what it sounds like when someone else writes their words down. That's probably true across the board with so, so many people. I know it was true with me when I first started writing poetry. I love to write and I do it because I love to do it. I know a lot of professional writers like you and my friend Alan Wolf and many others, and they write because of their job. It's their job to do this and they love doing it as, as well. And when I first started to write, I thought I was supposed to write a certain way. I wanted it wanted to be the way I thought it should be because I had heard this or that. It took years for me to realize all I have to do is what you just did once upon a time and go from there because my voice is perfectly acceptable. I mean, it sounds good on the radio. I know <laughs> it that. Sure does. It, but my, my voice, radio or otherwise, is perfectly acceptable. And that's true with, with everybody. That's probably the, the core bit of advice we could all somehow take to heart. Although, as you pointed out, the children 
become adolescents and then they become teenagers and somewhere along the way the filters get imposed upon them and the voice becomes less and less theirs and more kind of a collection of the external cultural cues they've picked up along the way that does happen and it's sad i don't i can't really explain it except that it is it's evolutionarily necessary right if we look at you know primate groups, right? You have to learn how to live in a primate group where there's an alpha and with all the social dynamics. And if you don't learn how to live in that kind of group, then you get ostracized and eventually you die. This is if, you know, we live in in nature. So we keep those things inside of us, but it is sad. I don't visit schools as much as I used to, especially during COVID days, but I used to visit about a hundred schools a year, a lot of different schools all over the country. And in fact, even in different countries. One of the things that I found was children in every school around the country were the same. I could tell a story to kids in Laredo, Texas, to kids in Sunset Park, Brooklyn, and to kids in suburban Seattle, and they would laugh at the same jokes. They would ask many of the same questions. They would reflect in many of the same ways. The people who were different were their teachers and librarians and the middle schoolers and high schoolers, right? That that's when they started to react to the social settings in a way that changed the way they were reacting to my stories. So children have this this fundamental similarity all over the world. And I think that it's when culture gets imposed upon them. And culture is not all bad. Lots of wonderful cultures all over the world, including here in, in this country. But it is when culture starts to work on the personality. um, And we see major changes, some positive, like kids are less likely to stand on a chair, grab their butts and shout once culture has been imposed upon them. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but there are also unequivocally negative things about self-consciousness, about coolness, about popularity, about groupthink that definitely get imposed on all of us as we get older. And I think the term writer has been imposed on us too Hmm. because when people hear that term i am a writer they default to the cultural definition of what that means i am now going to sit down with my keyboard my laptop or my my long form pen and i'm going to write i will write it down i'm going to put this down on paper leave an artifact and Lately, I've been getting to think that the term writer is doing us a disservice because we're really not writing in the old sense of the word. We're language explorers, generating material content, stories from our deep internal places that have no pages. It's coming somewhere within our DNA and it's emerging out as language movement and other forms and we capture it in different ways like right now you and i are we're not writing we're not sitting there taking down dictation on a piece of paper you and i are talking and i'm listening and and you're listening and and we're unfolding a story so we're creating something to hold our language to hold our essence of who we are as human beings and that can sometimes be the page with the fountain pen and the ink You could generate it on your computer, speak it into a recorder, certainly into the smartphone you have. Uh, You can just tell it to the world as if you're preaching. And somewhere out there, somebody 
will hear it and take it in and repurpose it. So here we are back to the cycle of stories being passed along forever and forever. And when we say, I'm a writer, suddenly the big quotes fall around the beginning and the end of the word. There's something about those quotes, the writerly importance that weighs us down. Now, at some point, when we do write, you put your work down and you make your books. It is writing. You are writing. And yet you're doing so much more. So I'm beginning to think the term writer, even though it's an appropriate term and I use it for myself, may be a little confining in terms of what our potential actually can do for us if we allow the spread to happen, like the sunrise coming up over the ridge. Yeah, that's a beautiful way of thinking about it. And I, you're, you're pushing the way that I conceive of it as well, which I appreciate. I absolutely agree with the, the weight of the term writer. And when I usually think of what I'm doing when I'm writing, I think of it as communicating, obviously. Sometimes it is communicating with myself. Usually it's trying to communicate with the world. I don't do a ton of personal journaling. When I am doing something like personal journaling, I am communicating with myself. The way you said it was really beautiful and, and enlightening to me. You know, I think you said exploring the world, right? And so when I'm journaling, I'm exploring my internal world. I'm exploring it for myself. And when I think of writing for other people, I certainly think of it as communicating. I'll say a bit more about that in one second. But I also think, just to acknowledge how you're pushing the way I think about it, it is also a form of exploring the world. And it's exploring the world with a reader, right? So that you're exploring it and they can also explore it through your exploration. And they might agree with where you end up and they might disagree with where you end up, or they might end up somewhere that they think you ended up and you thought you ended up somewhere totally different, like me and Jack Zipes, right? Where I think I'm writing about one thing, he thinks I'm writing about something else. If somebody does have ambition to be a writer who gets paid for writing, it's really important to me that they remember that what they are actually being paid to do is not to write, as you say, but they are being paid to communicate. So somebody is only interested in the stories that I have insofar as I can make them feel through those stories, that I can take them on an emotional journey, that they start with intrigue, they probably pass through fear or anxiety, and they end up with catharsis. Oh, what an incredible journey, what achievement these characters had. I need to get the reader there. And it doesn't matter how I do it. I could do anything. By hook and by crook, I'm trying to get them there. So this is less the exploratory part of writing. This is the communicative part of writing, though the exploration then happens if you've done the communication well. When I was teaching high school, I, I started teaching about literary theory, which gets pretty out there and pretty wacky, pretty heady. So one of the wackiest parts of literary theory that I actually found really useful as a professional writer is when Jacques Derrida talks about how all the words on a page are just squiggles. They have no intrinsic meaning whatsoever. They are just marks, and we imbue them with meaning. And sometimes we imbue them with meaning in a way that is what the author intended, they have all sorts of valences, he called them, all sorts of meanings that are absolutely unintended, but they are equally legitimate. An example is one of the last lines of the book, uh, Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man by James Joyce. 
is I go forth to forge my consciousness. A writer working in Derrida's lineage talked about how the word forge in that case, that he's going to forge his, his soul or forge his consciousness. The word forge has two similar but orthogonal meanings. One means to create, and the other means to falsify, like forging a document. Those meanings are both there in that word forge, regardless of what James Joyce wanted to be in that word, right? And so it takes us on these multiple paths. The only reason I bring all that up is when we are putting squiggles on a page, whatever it takes with those squiggles to make the reader feel is allowed. As long as you're not plagiarizing, don't plagiarize, shouldn't do that. But other than that, <laughs> anything that you can do with those squiggles to make the reader feel is allowed. You have these imposing definitions of what a writer is, what it means, as you say, with those quotation marks. What does it mean to put words onto a page that will inspire down the ages, blah, blah, blah. No, you think of a reader or many readers, if you're capable of holding many people in your mind at one time, which some days I am, some days I'm not. And you think about how you're going to move that person, usually from intrigue, maybe through despair, and hopefully perhaps ultimately to catharsis. And any way you do it, absolutely okay, because that's what you're trying to do. And the idea of writer, it's an important word. What I'm attempting to do in this conversation is recalibrate the way we embrace that term so that it serves us better as communicators. So when I think of writing, and I think of myself as a writer, I'm thinking of myself as I'm a maker as much as a writer. I'm making something. I'm busy making a story. I'm busy writing the story down in the same way as hoeing a garden. If I go out and hoe my garden, I don't come back in and say, I'm a hoer. <laughs> I come back in and say, I hoed my garden and now the plants will grow. Um, or if I, if I, <laughs> that's a great, that's a wonderful analogy. Mow my lawn. I don't say I'm a mower. I am a, a human being using a tool, using an approach to make something beautiful happen. And that's what writing is all about. And at the end, you have something to offer. And it is written down. So the end product is somehow it does get written down often. And we call that a book. But my goodness, that is the very end of the process. You know, the grim tales and all of those stories started a long, long time ago. And we we're just following on the waves of, of all of this momentum and beauty that's been around forever. Your wonderful metaphor about hoeing and mowing gardens reminded me of this Seamus Haney poem called Digging. And it's a wonderful poem that absolutely supports what you were saying, digging. Between my finger and my thumb, the squat pen rests, snug as a gun. Under my window, a clean rasping sound when the spade sinks into gravelly ground. My father, digging. I look down till his straining rump among the flower beds bends low, comes up 20 years away, stooping in rhythm through potato drills where he was digging. The coarse boot nestled on the lug. The shaft against the inside knee was levered firmly. He rooted out tall tops buried the bright edge deep to scatter new potatoes that we picked, loving their cool hardness in our hands. By God, the old man could handle a spade, just like his old man. My grandfather cut more turf in a day than any other man on Toner's bog, 
Once I carried him milk in a bottle, corked sloppily with paper. He straightened up to drink it, and then fell to right away, nicking and slicing neatly, heaving sods over his shoulder, going down and down for the good turf. Digging. The cold smell of potato mold, the squelch and slap of soggy peat, the curt cuts of an edge through the living roots awaken in my head. But I've no spade to follow men like them. Between my finger and my thumb, the squat pen rests. I'll dig with it. Adam, that is really, really good. I mean, Seamus Haney is such a strong poet. He has the pen, and then it's the shovel, and then it's the gun, which is suggesting the troubles in Ireland. Mm -hmm. Then the potatoes, the potato famine, the rump, the bent over years passing, bends us down more and more. And then he talks about the peat, the turf. And the turf is what people use in Ireland to, to burn in their hearth. That's the family fire. And then he says, and I'm digging with my pen. That's exactly what I'm talking about. I wonder if Seamus Haney would have said, I'm a writer. <laughs> I imagine Seamus Haney would have said, yeah, I'm a, I write poetry. Yes. And then would he probably would have said, I'm a turf cutter. Which brings us back to the politics of humanity. Mm. Brings us back to our true voices. Brings us back to you being yourself, me being myself, and everybody listening being whomever they are. Digging, however, we choose to dig to find something meaningful in our, in our lives that we can now share to, with somebody else. And that's the whole idea behind this. And all of these young children reading these fairy tales, there must be some out there in the back row thinking, this could never belong to me. And then they hear a little sentence or hear a little story and they say well this could be mine too mm. and off they go and that may be why the idea of pursuing whatever we have to say is so important because we can never predict who will be sitting in the back row listening and being moved forever yeah that's why i do what i do it's why i write it's why i tell stories to kids it's also why I do the political work that we've done together, because I think that the, the greatest thing in the world is when a human being is able to realize themselves, when they feel the joy and the fulfillment that comes from doing a thing that they love and doing it really, really well. And so both in my creative work, and in my political work, all I am seeking is to give more people an opportunity to realize themselves. And when you know your story, when you've discovered who you are, you then can make better personal decisions for yourself, for your family, for your neighbors, your community, your state, your nation, and our world. And as we close this, You've mentioned a couple of times your political work, and I know we don't have too much time to talk about that, but I would like for you just to mention to people listening what you are involved in so that they know the contrast between your storytelling and your political work. Just a little brief mention. 
I focus particularly on um, state governments, which immediately I know all of your listeners have just fallen asleep or turned off the dial. But the state governments are, in fact, the foundations of democracy in this country. And if you followed what happened after the 2020 election, there was a lot of work to undermine the vote at the state governmental level. State governments control all sorts of things that we never thought of, and that's because the founders designed it that way. Founders figured out when they were trying to create the Constitution was, let's leave as much power as we can with state governments. But today, we read the newspaper, we think about the president, we think about the Senate, we think about Congress, and we don't think about where power actually resides, which is in state legislatures. So what I do is I try to motivate people, mobilize people to focus on state legislatures so that the laws in each state maximally allow people to realize their best selves in their lives. And also so that each state legislature will preserve democracy in this country so that we can choose our own leaders. Uh, Maybe we don't have cruel kings who will imprison us because we brought them a mortar and not a pestle, but we can have the empress like the little farmer girl, the clever farmer's daughter, who will allow us all to live our best lives. So in terms of the political aspects of our culture, coming back to the original opening of our conversation, I can easily see all of these fairy tales being played out. And the nursery rhymes, Jack and Jill went up the hill to fetch a pail of water. Jack fell down and broke his crown and Jill came tumbling after or Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. All the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty together again. Or Emily Dickinson, I'm nobody. Who are you? Are are you nobody too? Then there's a pair of us. Shh, don't tell. They'd banish us, you know. How dreary to be somebody. How public, like a frog. To tell one's name the live long day to an admiring bog. (laughs) I love that poem and you tell it beautifully. You don't read it. You tell it to go back to what you'd said before about writing. You communicate that poem. Well, I have it. I've had that poem memorized for a long time, and it it certainly applies to all the things that that we are are doing right now. Uh, Adam, if people would like to get in touch with you, learn more about the work you're doing, watch your Netflix show. I, I know you've do, you do this professionally. This is your job. Your day job is to generate books. So how do people connect with you, your Twitter, Twitter handle, what's your website, all of that? Yeah, so um, I'm not on Twitter a ton. Uh, you can find me at Adam Gidwitz. Uh, my website is adamgidwitz.com. So that's A-D-A-M-G-I-D-W-I-T-Z.com. You can hear my podcast anywhere you get podcasts called Grim, Grimmer, Grimmest. And I hope you'll check out my books, A Tale Dark and Grim, The Inquisitor's Tale, and a fun globetrotting series for younger kids, the Unicorn Rescue Society. So Adam Goodwitz, thanks for taking the time to be with us today. I appreciate your your insights and all the work you do writing these books and telling these stories. Storytelling matters, and you are doing the, the job you were born to do. So thank you for doing that. Well, thank you. You know what else matters is uh, actually communicating with people. And I feel like in a conversation like this one, Nave, you really know how to communicate with people. So it's a true pleasure to talk to you about the things that are most important to me uh, and to you um, and hopefully to the listeners as well. I appreciate it, Adam. 
And that, my friends, concludes our conversation with Adam Gidwitz, children's author and political consultant. So often when I do these interview conversations, like the one we just had with Adam, I'm always pleased when we work our way into conversations about how you can get your creative work into the world. And as Adam was talking about his experiences working with school students, he reminded me of the times I spent in the school systems all over the country doing not exactly what Adam does, but something similar, which was teaching the students how to perform poetry as a way to become more familiar with what it might mean individually. Of course, as Adam points out, one sentence can mean many things to many different people. I love the idea of forge. I forge my life. I go forward forging my life or forging the document. So right there's perfect example of a word that can mean two different things depending on how you understand it. So when I was working with the school students, I was in an assembly program and I performed the poems on the stage and then afterwards we gathered in the auditorium, maybe 15 students, and we were working with how to use poetry spoken as a way to understand its meaning. Of course, I had long since learned that using shorter poems to illustrate the point was really the best way to go. I referenced some of the nursery rhymes in the conversation with Adam, Jack be nimble, Jack be quick, Jack jump over the candlestick. Of course, there were others that I would use in the classroom settings, humorous ones like some of the poems Ogden Nash wrote, for example, Behold the hippopotamus, we laugh at how he looks to us, yet in moments dank and grim, I wonder how we look to him. Or another Ogden Nash poem, The termite knocked upon the wood, tasted it, and found it good, and that is why your Auntie May fell through the parlor floor today. So humor was always a good way to approach poetry with school students. Everybody would laugh and they would get a kick out of the hippopotamus or the termite. And of course using the shorter poems also made the idea of performing a poem or memorizing one seem easy to everybody in the classroom. And I would often make a, a little bit of a joke by saying, okay, let's all memorize a poem and we'll do it in in in." 15 seconds and the students would look at me like I was out of my mind and I would say to them it's a very short poem and, and here's how it goes I'll give you the title first on the antiquity of fleas Adam Haddam and of course I would quickly point out that the title of the poem on the antiquity of fleas is a lot longer than the poem itself Adam Haddam I would say, would anybody like to recite the poem back to me? Hands would go up and all the students would say, Adam Haddam, Adam Haddam, Adam Haddam. And I would say, there you go. You all now have one poem to your credit that you have memorized. And the reason you were able to memorize it was because, obviously, it's short. Adam Haddam. The students all laughed and enjoyed it. Underneath that was some serious learning experience going on. Success was right before them, and reframing memorization with a very short poem gave them all a sense of success, which meant they 
could go on to a little longer point if they wanted to. And I would often use the antiquity of fleas as a jumping off point for other memorization, still keeping the poems short. I often would use one on a more serious note by Langston Hughes titled Poem, and it goes like this. I loved my friend. He went away from me. There's nothing more to say. The poem ends. Soft as it began, I loved my friend. I used Langston Hughes' poem as a way to illustrate to students how simple language can be and how easy you can understand it and yet how complex it is all at the same time. And we would memorize the poem and we did it by using body movements. I loved my friend. The students would put their hands to their hearts. He went away from me. They would move their arms out open wide like they're looking toward the horizon. Someone has gone far, far away. There's nothing more to say. They would shrug their shoulders. The poem ends soft as it began. They would bring their hands together and then put their palms also together like the book was closing. And then on the last line, I loved my friend. They would bring their hands back to their hearts and close the poem, all saying it as a group, I loved my friend. It was a beautiful sight to see the entire classroom moving like a dance and singing the poem really as a, as a choir. Each student thinking about loss and what it meant. And I would often go around the room and ask the students, well, what, does, what did it mean? Who were you thinking about? You know, who have you lost in your life? Who has moved away? And as you might expect, the students would say things like, I lost my grandmother last year or my, my best friend moved away when his father was transferred to Germany. Often the students would talk about a pet they had lost. Sometimes the circumstances around the loss were more imaginative. Which brings me back to the afternoon. I stepped off the stage and was working with the group of eighth grade students in the auditorium. They had already memorized Adam Haddam and had worked through the movements around the Langston Hughes poem. And then I asked about the circumstances. What was going on with you when you were saying the poem aloud? I got a couple of standard answers, and then one girl raised her hand and said, Well, I imagined I was a zookeeper, and I was taking care of the last of a species, and I had been given the responsibility to care for this animal as long as I possibly could. And then one day... The animal died. The species was gone. It was no more. I was still there, but the species was gone. And when I was saying the poem, I loved my friend, he went away from me. There's nothing more to say. The poem ends soft as it began. I loved my friend. I was thinking about the animal, the last of the species, no more, gone forever. Well, I was rather impressed with that kind of thinking. I wasn't really expecting it, and yet there she was, smiling at me, not giving it a whole lot of thought other than she had just imagined it, which of course is what you can do when you're a child, and we can do it too as adults. I've always appreciated that story because the girl was an eighth grader, and she was willing to illustrate to me how 
Easily she could make those imaginative leaps, and in a way she encouraged me to stay loose and fluid and try to work in that direction as much as possible. I, I've never really forgotten that story, and for good reason. Our Earth is in turmoil right now with global warming and all the climate changes that are happening, and we are losing species every day. So I loved my friend. He went away from me. There's nothing more to say. The poem ends, soft as it began. I loved my friend. That poem has as much meaning now as it did when the little girl told me she was the zookeeper, and as it did when Langston Hughes wrote it. It had different meaning for Langston Hughes when he wrote it, a different meaning for the eighth grade student, and a different meaning for you and me. Forged. Forge the document. Forge our lives. Forge a poem. Make a poem. One word, many different meanings. And on that note, my friends, we have arrived at the end of our time together. So thank you ever so much for spending part of your day with us. I really do appreciate it. And you've been listening to Twice Five Miles Radio, fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave, always broadcasting first on WPVMLP Asheville 103.7, streaming online, WPVMFM.org, the voice of Asheville heard all over the world and on other community radio stations like KCEI, Cultural Energy Radio, out of Taos, New Mexico. Thank you, Walter Parks, for our theme song, WalterParks.com, if you would like to hear more of Walter's music. You can always contact me through jamesnave.com. Nave is spelled N-A-V-E. I would love to hear from you. Also, if you'd like to join me for an Imaginative Storm writing session on Saturday morning, the door is always open. We do it on Zoom, and it's a, it's great fun. We just write together for an hour. That's noon Eastern time, imaginativestorm.com for the Zoom link. And with that in mind, once again, thanks so much for tuning in. I really do appreciate it, and I hope you tune in again next time and until then i'll catch you on that turnaround somewhere down the line